Acts 11, we're picking up where we left off last week, which was verse 18, so we'll pick up with verse 19 and work through the end of chapter 12. So I'm actually going to read the whole passage before we begin. I should say as we begin. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them to all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, and recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter knocking, but Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. 
but motioning to them with his hands hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod had searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Our text this morning begins by reminding us that what, we, what we've been seeing happen and really the last nine chapters or so in the life of the church is set in the context of some pretty intense persecution. So when Acts eleven nineteen, which is the beginning of our text this morning, says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, were, were just forced to just take a few steps back in time and remember that a couple of chapters ago there was a complaint that arose in the church as the church was experiencing a pretty um, incredible time of growth a complaint arose among the greek-speaking jews that their widows were being neglected in the daily food distribution in an effort to address the problem without neglecting the word and prayer. The apostles instructed the congregation to choose seven men from among them who would oversee the food distribution and make sure that none of the widows were neglected. And one of those men that the church determined was of good repute and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom was Stephen, who almost instantly becomes the target of false accusation and persecution because of his witness for Jesus. As quickly as Stephen's star rises in the church, it falls in chapter 7 as he's stoned to death by enraged religious leaders who refused to believe that they were the betrayers and the murderers of God's Messiah. And Stephen's stoning just seems to have been the kind of the, the taste of blood in the water to the sharks who were overseeing the religious climate in Jerusalem because a very intense period of persecution follows his execution. And, and if we could just stick with that theme, kind of a great white among those religious leaders was Saul who's been converted by the time we get to our 
text, obviously, but back in Acts chapter 8, just prior to his conversion, the Bible tells us that he was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And we're told there that the church at Jerusalem scatters throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria because of this persecution. Now, you would would think that the threats and the imprisonments and Stephen's stoning would have led to the church's dissolution. Just dissolve. The apostles would go back to their careers as fishermen and tax collectors. I mean, that that was the design of the planned threats and persecutions and imprisonments that just dissolve and go away. But incredibly, the book of Acts doesn't end at Acts 8.3 with Saul's ravaging the church and going house to house and dragging male and female Christians, any that he could find off to prison. It doesn't end there. And not only does it not end there, but the very next verse says... Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Saul, in rage, goes house to house, dragging men and women off to prison. And the next verse says the disciples scatter. And as they scatter, they go forth preaching the word. So there's just two things to keep in mind about the disciples scattering, just to keep it in context. Yes, they scatter out of fear. That's number one. There's no reason to try to dodge that reality. Because the offsetting reality, which is number two, in their scattering, they continued to preach the word everywhere they went. So fear was a reality, but fear did not prevent them from spreading the good news of the gospel because they understood the persecution to have been God's means for the gospel going to the ends of the earth. So even in their persecution, it was still under the umbrella of their view of God's sovereignty. This was his means of the gospel going forth. Not only that, but his promise from the lips of Jesus himself was go and I will be with you all the way to the end of the age. So I just want to make sure that we can erase from our picture of these men and women in any way fleeing yet preaching as a duty driven or guilt motivated dilemma for them. It's not what it was. And I'm not denying the possibility of a legitimate dilemma there for those who are putting targets on their backs by opening their mouths on behalf of Jesus. But whatever degree of of dilemma was involved in their preaching the gospel, wherever they fled despite the fact that they were afraid, it wasn't duty and it wasn't guilt that won the day and motivated them to speak the gospel. And we know that to be the case because the fruit of their witness was joy. And every community to which they went and spread the gospel. Duty-driven and guilt-motivated service doesn't bring the joy of the gospel to others. 
On the contrary, duty-driven and guilt-motivated service is a killer to the spreading of the joy of the gospel. And I bring that up just to, to say, may Christ's fellowship always be being continually cleansed and liberated from duty-driven and guilt-motivated Christian service. It's a killer to joy. We don't want any part of it here. When Philip flees Jerusalem, after his friend Stephen is is killed, just keep that in perspective. Stephen and Philip became deacons together. This is like, in our terms, this is Matt and Adam becoming deacons together. And Stephen dies and Philip flees. And when he flees out of fear, he goes to Samaria and he proclaims Christ to them. And crowds come out to listen and people in the crowds receive the message and the fruit of that labor, we're told, in Acts 8.8 is, so there was much joy in that city. And the word so there is very important because it indicates a result. The result of Philip, target on his back, one friend dead for doing the very thing that he was doing, yet the joy of the gospel overruling the fear of being persecuted, the fruit of that, the result of that, it affected joy in those who had ears to hear in Samaria. Kind of the grander significance of Philip's ministry is that he brought the gospel to the Samaritans. And as we've continued in our study of Acts through the last few chapters, we've now seen that the gospel has begun to reach into the Gentile world as well as Peter was sent by God to the household of Cornelius in Caesarea. And a number of people there believe and are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. So let's just, let's just pause for a minute. To remind ourselves that Christ Fellowship exists in Sun Prairie and in Dane County, not primarily to be a church full of upstanding citizens with stable jobs and nice houses and wholesome families, as much of a breath of fresh air that is to any community. That's not why we exist. We exist here to be the means through which God might fill a community with the joy of the gospel of his son's atoning death and triumphant resurrection and second coming and eternal reign. And while the dilemma between being persecuted and continuing to preach the gospel in our town and in our day is more than likely not something that any of us currently are facing right now, we still face a dilemma. Probably is best characterized by a dilemma between, on the surface, innocent distractions and gospel witness. Watch out. Because the intention behind that statement is not to produce in you the same duty-driven guilt motivated witness that I hope to erase from your picture of these believers. 
So I'm not trying to guilt you into going out and bearing witness for Jesus. I'm trying to liberate you from that at the same time, challenging you to gauge what might be filling your cup of joy this morning and overflowing from you to others and to remind us afresh that if, if it's not Christ, it may not necessarily be something inherently evil, but... Anything removed from the context of a gospel of grace that's flowing out, pouring forth from a kind and gracious God, which gospel is intended to reorient all things in life under his kindness toward us in Christ, anything removed out from under that becomes a distraction. So that whether you're passionate about your job or your family or your hobby or your vacation or your education or probably 10 billion other things, it will ultimately be unhelpful and distracting if it is not tied to God as its author, who's acted so kindly toward us who were his enemies because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the example in our text this morning of Barnabas. So as the disciples scatter and continue to preach the gospel, the place where our text kind of settles really um, for the rest of Acts, it's not really Jerusalem anymore, it's Antioch. Mission is taking place going forth from the church at Antioch. It's a predominantly Gentile city to the far north of Jerusalem. I love the fact that we're not even told the names of the disciples who first bring the word to Antioch. We're just told in our text that some of them, so some of the ones who fled, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Eventually, the word gets back to the church in Jerusalem that people in Antioch have been converted. So the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to check it out. And again, I want to bring this up because I don't want us to, I don't want us to think of the church in Jerusalem who has pretty much set a pattern that when the gospel goes to a new place and it's received and word gets back to them, they send kind of an, an ambassador to that place. Here they send Barnabas, but I want to just, I don't want us to think of the church at Jerusalem doing this as some kind of a skeptical policing of the gospel. So that Barnabas goes into the church at Antioch looking for reasons to discredit the gospel being received there and looking for faults among this young group of believers. That's not what was taking place. We know that because the text says when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then Luke adds this comment about Barnabas in the next verse, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And I don't think that verse is a parenthesis. 
So I don't think it says that Barnabas went to Antioch and encouraged them. And by the way, here's just a fact about Barnabas. He was a good man and is full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I think what he says in verse 24 is directly connected to verse 23 so that because Barnabas was a good man, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, because of God's work in him to produce that, he therefore went to Antioch as a representative of the church of Jerusalem, not looking for reasons to discredit or discourage what was happening there, but rather looking for reasons and anticipating evidences of the same grace at work in Antioch that was at work in his own life. And when he saw it, he was full of gladness and he was full of encouragement for for the people. So I don't think the atmosphere that Barnabas created in this young church among these young believers was one of intimidation or worry that he's walking around with a notepad of everything that they're doing wrong. My picture, on the contrary, is that whatever intimidation factor an ambassador from the church of Jerusalem brought with him to Antioch was removed in the first five minutes as Barnabas begins to praise all the evidences of grace in their midst rather than focus on all the areas where they hadn't quite yet arrived. Not only that, but he shows up, praises the work of grace taking place in their midst, and it draws him in. He wants to stay with them, and he wants to build the church with them, and he wants to bring joy to the people of Antioch through the gospel with them. It's a dream for Christ fellowship in Sun Prairie. It's a dream that believers would be gathered here who are overflowing with the joy that the gospel has brought into their lives. And because of the gospel, whose eyes have been adjusted to view life through the lens of grace. So that we see it in others and rejoice because of it. And then we look out to preach the gospel of grace where evidences of grace can't be found. All motivated for the joy of those people to whom we go out and preach it. That's why we're here. We're not here to take notes about what all the other churches are doing wrong. We're here to praise evidences of grace among them and work with them to reach our community with the joy of the gospel it ends up Barnabas goes to Tarsus finds Paul and he and Barnabas gather with this church body for an entire year at some point in that year a prophecy concerning a famine comes to pass and this young church at Antioch that had been blessed by the gospel coming to them through those who fled Jerusalem in Acts 8. And now blessed by Barnabas' coming to them and encouraging them and remaining with them, it ends up that the famine just seriously depletes the once flourishing church in Jerusalem. 
And the church at Antioch comes to their aid and sends that aid to the church at Jerusalem by the hands of the same men who had blessed them from them over the past year. So Christ Fellowship, let's have eyes that look for grace before fault. And let's have hearts that continue to be full of sacrifice and generosity for the sake of the gospel. And let's pray that from our midst, missionaries are sent and discouraged churches are encouraged and depleted churches are blessed and the joy of the gospel is spread in the process. And let's never lean so hard on the past realities of that having taken place here that we begin to coast. What that means is if you have been a means or if we have been a means of grace to somebody in the past, it's time to lift up your eyes and look to be that afresh. Because a lot of times leaning so hard on what God in his kindness has allowed you or us to do in his name in the past is a deadly excuse for coasting in the present. So consider this a challenge to evaluate and, if need be, repent and turn again in faith to Jesus. And just as so much good and grace is being manifest all over the place in Antioch, Jerusalem is just continuing to suffer. Not only from the famine and the depletion of resources in the church, but also because Jerusalem and Judea was being ruled by an absolute man-pleaser, Herod. Herod's job, to be very simplistic with you, was to keep peace between the Jews and the Romans, or between Jerusalem and Rome. So as verse 3 says, Herod does everything that he can to please the Jewish religious authorities, including persecuting those that he himself has no problem with, other than that the church caused him problems by causing the Jewish religious authorities problems. When you compare Herod's persecution to Saul's in Acts 8, at least Saul's, was for religious convictions, as off as those convictions might have been. Herod's motivation here, it's totally political. He kills an apostle, says here, to please the Jews, who continue to view this group as a threat. And as verse 3 says, and when... He saw that it pleased the Jews. Herod proceeded to arrest Peter also. So the reality is, if if Herod looks good to the Jews, he also looks good to Rome. Killing James made him look good to the Jews, which made him look good to Rome. So he arrests another figure of authority in the church. This time it's Peter. Throws him in prison. He obviously would have known what happened the last time they tried to imprison Peter. So he chains him to a few soldiers. He places other soldiers outside of his cell. He's got others at the gates of the prison, and he rotates them every three or four hours. If there's any question at all as to 
Herod's intentions with Peter. He orders the execution of the men who were on watch when he escapes the next morning. So his intention, no doubt, is to kill him in the morning. That night, however, God reminds us and he reminds them that even the best of human efforts cannot stop God and that God's people are absolutely safe, always in his care, are never outside of his sovereign grace, even in the most trying and gloomy of circumstances, which doesn't always mean earthly deliverance. Just means trust him. It means trust him because he's good, he's sovereign. And if his plan is not earthly deliverance as it wasn't for James, deliverance from this earth for his people is equal to eternal deliverance, which Paul says in Philippians 1 is far better. Nevertheless, in this case, God chooses deliverance for Peter. And the way that God does it, he makes absolutely clear that this was not orchestrated by Peter from within the walls of the prison. In all seriousness, Peter pretty much thinks he's having a cool dream. Until the angel leaves him alone and cold in the street in the middle of the night when he comes to himself and realizes that what was taking place was real. Don't miss the humor. It's Peter being woken up from a dead sleep. And picture him in just groggy stumble. And the angel saying, get up. Dress yourself. Put your shoes on. Wrap yourself in a cloak and follow me. And suddenly they're outside and they're in the street. And the angel leaves him and he comes to himself. And interestingly enough, when Peter comes to himself, he doesn't go back to the prison. He's confident that God's hand had delivered him, and to him, here, that meant it's time to not submit to Herod and turn myself in. To him, it meant it's time to run. So he runs. He runs to the place where he knows his church family gathers. It's John Mark's mother's house. Sure enough, the church was there, and they weren't just there, but they were praying, and they weren't just praying, but I'm just going to lean on most of church history here and, and be confident that the church was gathered at John Mark's mother's house that night praying, in particular for Peter, because they know that it's going to go bad for him when morning comes. I think that is substantiated by the fact that when Rhoda comes and hears his voice and runs back into her church family, leaving Peter outside by himself while he's on the run, the church says, it can't be Peter, it must be his ghost. So they think Herod has put him to death already. I love the contrast, though, in the text. Because on the one hand, there's Herod, and there's Rome, and there's the Jews, and there's execution, and prison, and threats, and there's this aura of power over them. But then there's this teeny contrast word that says, but prayer. 
So there's all that, and the contrasting picture is this group of some Christians in somebody's living room praying together to a God who delights to show his glory by answering the prayers of his people. Even when it appears as though they struggle to believe that their prayers will be answered as appears to be the case here. They eventually let Peter inside. He doesn't stay long. Rehearses the story for them. He instructs them to tell James and the others, and then he, he leaves. And from that point on, really, in the book of Acts, he pretty much takes a back seat to the Apostle Paul, who's sent out to the Gentiles in the next chapter and whose journeys really fill out the remainder of the book of Acts. You know what happens back at the prison the next morning. Peter's gone. Herod has the guards who were on watch at the time executed. Herod leaves and leaves, goes to Caesarea. At Caesarea, there are a bunch of very needy people who heartlessly and very insincerely scratch his ego by attributing deity to him, not because they believe it, not because they love him. It is totally because they're poor and they're impoverished and they're completely dependent on him for food. And Herod, in his pride and to his shame, makes no effort to deflect glory from himself to God which God, for this brief moment in history, had given Herod his power and authority and riches for the purpose of using it for good and for the punishment of evil. The text never says that Herod affirmed the praise, never even says that he denied it. However, the the picture that seems to win is that he just kind of stood there and just soaked the praise in. He did not acknowledge God at all in his position of authority. In verse 23 says, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. I love how chapter 12 ends. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So at the beginning of our text in 1119, the church was scattered, but the word scattered with them everywhere they went. And God was causing it to prosper and bring forth fruit, conversions everywhere. At the end of our text in verse 24 of chapter 12, even after execution and imprisonment. Verse 24 says the word is still increasing and multiplying, and it's about about to multiply even more and reach even further into the world for the glory of his name. As we pick up next week in chapter 13, but it brings us right back here to Sun Prairie which wasn't even a dot on the map, obviously, in Paul or Peter's or Barnabas' day. And yet we're here for the same purpose for which he and others were there. 
to spread the gospel of the glory of Christ for the joy of all people in our community and to the ends of the earth. Which is the ultimate end to which I will close us in prayer right now. Father in heaven, it's so refreshing to look at your word and to see your handiwork in true stories. Lord, you doing exactly what you said you would do before the world began as you communed in joy with yourself and as you revealed in your word from the beginning and over and over and over again throughout. You are building your church. You're gathering your people. You're revealing yourself. You're you're building a people for your name. You're conforming them to the image of your son. You're preparing that bride for its marriage to the one who redeemed it. Father, we are humbly, gladly part of that here right now, and we know that we're part of that here right now because you are still, by the power of your Spirit, applying the purchase that Christ secured when he died on the cross You're still saving. The gospel's still going forward. Clear us. Liberate us from distractions. Lord, may all things afresh just be reoriented under the the heading, the, the category, the umbrella of the gospel of the grace of Christ. So that whatever is the topic of our conversation or the purpose of our day is an outgrowth of your kind hand toward us in Christ and it comes out in whatever we're doing. Lord, may we not even be able to put the lid on the overflowing joy that comes through the gospel of the grace of Christ penetrating a church. This is my prayer for Christ fellowship this this morning, and it's the prayer that as we take a few moments and Matt plays, that I would ask you to pray for yourself and your role here as well. Eyes Eyes that see through grace rather than fault, Eyes that look to reach out. Eyes that reorient all things in life under the gospel of grace that it might overflow from you toward others. We'll be called back in a few moments to sing.